Hi, folks. Before we begin today's episode, we have a special guest dropping in to share some very exciting news. Our guest, Rick Gorman, is a developer here in the ThoughtBot New York City office and is here to tell us about a panel that he's been organizing called How to Sell Technical Debt to Your Business. Rick, thank you so much for dropping in today. Steph, thank you for having me. Glad to have a chance to be on the air. So in regards to the panel that you're organizing, it sounds like it's all about technical debt, which I know is something that is a very popular topic and something that I'm always interested in. So can you give us some more details about what the event will include and how the panel is being organized? Absolutely. So the idea for the panel came up as kind of a personal quest to figure out what is it that drives a piece of technical debt to be processed and paid back. I've had a number of clients in the past who have had technical debt issues where there's so much technical debt that they're not quite sure what to approach, what to tackle, what makes sense. And from an engineering perspective, it's easy for one to say, well, let's just tackle this piece. Let's clean up the database. Let's clean up the views. Let's clean up something that makes a developer happy or something that creates a better feeling in engineering. But at the higher level, there's a different conversation that happens. There's actually a a selling process of how doing this action of cleaning up this technical debt is going to benefit the business. I wanted to learn more about this. So I started reaching out to tech leaders and just point blank asking them, what's that conversation look like? How do you quantify technical debt in a way that the business understands and is happy to support you in. And through these conversations, we've put together an expert panel. So coming up Friday, July 24th, at 12 p.m. Eastern, we are going to have a conversation with these leaders around what it is to engage in the selling of technical debt to the business. That sounds really exciting. I really appreciate how you're approaching this conversation from those that are leading teams, because as a developer and a consultant, I certainly understand from the developer perspective of finding technical debt and then lobbying for how important that technical debt is to pursue or if it's something that can be delayed till later. So I'm really excited to hear from some leaders and then how they handle that process that you just mentioned, where they're really having to budget and sort of like sell the idea that they do need to focus on technical debt and which part of those issues that they're going to focus on first. Who all is going to be on the panel? Yeah, so we've got Maria Laughlin, the VP of Engineering at Toast. We've got Jim Studer, longtime CIO of Univision. Neil Bay, VP of Technology at TuneCore. And Susan, I apologize if I'm getting this wrong. Susan Direkmanjan, Director of Engineering at John Hancock. And for everyone who's interested in attending the event, how do they register for the panel? Yeah, so we've got free registration up. You can find it at tbot.io slash tech hyphen debt. Excellent. We'll be sure to include a link in the show notes so that way people can register easily. And thank you again for stopping by to tell us about the upcoming panel. Steph, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. How many lows would Rob Lowe rob if Rob Lowe did Rob Lowe's? Zero, because he's rich. (laughs) (laughs) He'd do it just for the thrill. Haven't you seen the Thomas Crown Affair? (laughs) 
Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Gary. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, Steph, how's it going? Hey, hey, uh, I'm doing pretty well. I, oh, I have a show I want to tell you about. I don't know if we've already talked about it or if you're watching it, uh, but it's called Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. I've yet to start watching it, but I definitely am planning to at some point in the near future. Okay. Do you have a show that you're currently watching? Are you in need of a new show? Um, soon, I think. We have like, <laughs> this is, I feel complicated now, but we have different slots in our life for different TV shows. Like I have one show that is dedicated to when I'm on the exercise bike. Currently, that's Entourage. Uh, previously, it was Veep. <laughs> Turns out HBO shows, perfect length. And I like the upbeat energy of Entourage. Uh, and then uh, I've been watching Dark on Netflix. That show is fantastic, but very dark, just to throw that out there. But yeah, we'll be soon past that. So yeah, this this seems like a good recommendation. Is it on Netflix or which is it on? It's on YouTube TV, maybe other places, but that's where I've been watching it. I love the the bit that you just shared about watching Entourage on the exercise bike that, I don't know, that just really amuses me. That's great. Uh, so yeah, this one's on YouTube TV and it's just, it's enchanting and it's a little too close to reality for me sometimes. So the main character, uh, Zoe, she is a computer programmer and she begins to hear people's inner thoughts and feelings as songs. Mm-hmm. So there's the parody element where they poke fun at the tech startup culture, which is really amusing. But then more importantly, there's a lot of singing and dancing, which is what I'm here for. It's it's really great. I think there's just one season right now. There may be a second one coming out, but I'm just still working through the first one. I'd forgotten about the developer aspect, but I assume it resonates with you because of the mind reading and hearing people, their inner songs. That's, that's the part that got you right there. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. I didn't know someone else had these powers until they put it into a show. And I was like, oh, great. There's, there's other people who do this too. Well, it's a fake show. She doesn't actually have those powers. You do, but she does. <laughs> it's just you. Uh, You're the only real one with these it's powers. Just me. <laughs> I think that makes you Mo in this case, which you haven't seen the show, so you don't you won't get that reference. But when you watch the show, you'll get that reference. <laughs> Hope that goes well for me. I'm intrigued who this Mo is now. But uh, all right, I all the more so have to watch to find out. Mo's a, a wonderful character. So yeah, it's a good reference. There's that. Well, and there's also the part uh, to be personal where her dad is also going through an illness. And so my dad's going through an illness. And so there's that part that kind of hits close to home. And then yeah, there's some of the parody stuff that's fun with like the tech community. But yeah, it's a it's a good time. So that's been bringing me joy this week. How about you? How are you doing? I'm doing well. This is just before the start of the long holiday weekend for July 4th. So that will be nice. Looking forward to enjoying some time off. Um, I've been working a lot lately, so working a little less for a few days would be nice. Uh, Looking forward to that. Have you been working like extra hours when you say you've been working a lot lately or just haven't really taken a break? Um, Haven't really taken a break. And I think I've worked a little bit more than I might have normally. I'm balancing between the two clients. And so there's like an amount of overhead that comes with each of them. And I'm now taking that on. And I'm still trying to like figure out those levels and how do I structure my day and structure my time and what exactly does eight hours look like and what does, you know, where does management and filling out invoices and things like that, like how does that fit into everything? And so it's still just a little, there's also the cognitive overhead of that. Like I had to figure out how to write an invoice. That was a thing that I had to do. And I had to figure out how to do a whole bunch of other new novel things that weren't necessarily part of my world before. But I'm getting there, figuring it out bit by bit, or I'm failing miserably, but I haven't noticed yet. So 
It's that worst kind of failure we talk about, that silent failure, where you won't find out till way down the road. Way to bring it back and make it extra topical. I like it. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the bits I've been really interested in as you've been diving into freelancing world is everything else that goes with it is because you have to become skilled in a lot of other areas as you're managing your own Toomey Toomey and Morgan establishment, which I realize is an inside joke that I've just now shared with everybody else. I hope that's okay. <laughs> yes, now it's an outside joke. Uh, yeah, no, totally fine. It's um, Morgan's not a real person for anyone listening on. Uh, Toomey is. The second Toomey, I don't know technically if that's a real person. That's my alter ego. It's my good cop, bad cop, good Toomey, bad Toomey. And then Morgan's, I don't know, someone. Uh, he's the one in the back office doing the invoices. Just makes it official. You got to have three three names. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's the rule of three. Like humor fits to that. So why wouldn't my fancy consultancy fit to that? Uh, so following on the heels of Toomey Toomey Morgan and uh, pivoting completely in a different direction to save myself from sharing more inside jokes, <laughs> I had a, a bit of fun this week with a command that I wasn't familiar with, uh, but it's the said command. It's the stream editor that lets you quickly edit files or streams using pattern matching and replacement. And that was just nifty. I had a task of the project that I'm working in is still requiring the spec helper file and every spec that you write or in the existing file. And you no longer have to do that if you are starting a project and you're initializing with RSpec. RSpec is going to create that .RSpec file and it's going to include that spec helper for you by default. Or if you already have RSpec, so it's not going to initialize for you on your behalf because you don't need to go through that process, you can add it yourself manually to that file. And now you no longer have to write require spec helper each time that you're creating a test. So it just it's nice. It just saves you like one extra tedious step, something you don't have to remember to do each time. Uh, so I was going through the project and decided, you know, it'd be fun to like remove all these lines because it's showing a pattern to everybody else who is coming along and adding an additional file. They're also including that line because we're copying and pasting into new files. And then it's also just fun to delete a bunch of code. So I wanted to remove uh, the line in each file that has the require spec helper that's either in single quotes or double quotes because we've got both going at this time. And then there's often an empty line that will follow that require spec helper. So it's either an empty line and then we have the capitalize R spec and then we're describing the class or it might be some additional code that's there. And so if I just remove the require spec helper, I now have this empty line at the top of the file and that wasn't great. I really wanted to get both. So I started looking for ways to do this specific thing and I hopped into ThoughtBot's Vim channel thinking that someone could help me out figuring the quickest way to search and to delete. And it was Adam Sharp, a fellow ThoughtBotter who responded to me and gave the suggestion to you said and then very kindly provided like the whole line for me to use, which is essentially using a regex and then it's going to look for require and then there's a nice fanciness where it's going to check to see if it's single quotes versus double quotes. I won't try to talk about all of this in specifics because it's weird syntax to pronounce on a podcast, but it's looking for spec helper and single double quotes. And then it's also looking for an empty line. And then it's looking for everything within the spec directory. So that was fabulous. I ran it. It totally worked. But there's so many lines that then when I started looking through all the lines that had changed, it was searching all the way until it found an empty line. So if you had a require spec helper, require some other file, then an empty line, and then the capitalized R spec, it was removing everything up until that empty line. So then I started looking for a way. It's like, well, I only want to remove the line if it's the next line and it's empty and then stop 
Or the other approach is that I could remove all the spec helpers and then search every file and say, hey, if your first line is empty, then please remove that line. I've been successful with the first pass where it's easy to remove like the spec helper, but I haven't figured out the right combination to then say, if the first line is empty, then go ahead and remove it. I've seen a couple examples where folks are like, oh, yeah, you just do said with this particular regex and then you use the D command to delete it. But that hasn't worked for me. I keep getting errors. So that's something that I was looking at today. But the reason I was pursuing this particular path is I thought it'd be fun to have like a one liner or even if it's two liners to then be able to share with anyone. So it's not Vim specific. It's not um, like Atom or Sublime or like a particular way to do it. But anyone who wants to do this could just run this in their terminal and then commit those changes. So it's a work in progress, but it was just a, a neat thing to learn or continue learning since I haven't achieved my goal just yet. Whenever I come up with something like this, I always give myself like a a budget of a little bit of extra time to tweak with the command line things because I found it's one of those things that like I've slowly been learning more and more over time. And the next one that I do, I want to be just a little bit better at. So I'll I'll sometimes allocate like, okay, if I can do this some fancy scripting way in 10 minutes, cool, that's fine. But I might actually make it 15 or 20 minutes because I think it's worth knowing. It's worth going a little bit further and getting a little bit better. And uh, there's a fantastic talk by Gary Bernhardt called the Unix Chainsaw which talks a little bit about the Unix philosophy and the command line composability and how you can build up these little chains of commands and just how wonderful that is. And I've definitely found a lot of value. Sed's actually one that's still... I've gotten to like a certain level of knowledge with Sed and then I just topped off and I stopped there. But I've slowly added a few others. Awk is a weird one that I've added. Awk is a whole thing. Like Sed seems relatively contained in what it does. It's powerful. But Awk is like a whole programming language and it's a weird one. And yet you can also use it as these little like command line, one liner things and pipe stuff to it. So, um, but yeah, I love playing around with Unix command. It's very fun to fiddle with. Yeah. I ended up having to create myself a same budget where I kept tinkering with it because I kept wanting it to work. So then I was like, oh, this is a great, you know, tweet. And then I could share this and it would help somebody. But I was finally like, okay, I just have to, I have to manually change this because there were, there weren't too many files. It was a pretty big diff. I think I removed a thousand lines or something like that, 1100 lines. And I just looked through it and found, I think there were maybe like 10, 20 places that I needed to fix it. And then also there's a test suite that would let me know if I'd broken something. Like there was a line that was accidentally removed that I needed to replace. So I was also leaning on that. So I ended up having to go that slightly more manual approach to see if something was missing because I ended up using the line that removed everything up to the empty line because that worked like 98% of the time versus just removing the spec helper and then having to remove that first empty line that would have been far more tedious. So yeah, I'm I'm with you. There's got to be a budget for it, but I'm just, I feel so close. So I may have to budget now that I've got the work done. I can allocate another 10, 15 minutes. We'll see. I'll negotiate with myself as to how much more time I get. Steph fighting Steph for Steph's time. There's actually, I've been drafting a blog post for forever that I really should publish. So I'm now saying it on a podcast such that if I haven't published it by the time this comes out, the internet can shame me. I often find myself in a similar boat where I can like get really close with Sed or with Awk or with whatever, but I can't quite do the exact edit that I want. It's a little too subtle. And so what I found is there's this nice middle ground that I can get where I use grep or something like that to find the relevant files so I just want to know all of the files in the code base that need this change and then open those in Vim, but in a particular way 
they're open in what's called the arg list. And so now Vim has this list of files that you want to edit on. So then each file, I can just do whatever the thing is in Vim. And I'm much more adept at changing text in Vim, it turns out, even if that's like record a little macro. And then I rerun that macro on each of the files. But I can do that and progress through each file, get to the end, and then I know that I'm done and have that like semi-automated version. So there's like a couple of pieces to pipe together there. And I've been drafting a blog post, like I said, for a while now. So I just need to finish that and share it with the world. But it definitely is the thing that like, that's what I fall back on now when I can't figure out the set or awk or grep command. Do you find that you use Vim macros pretty frequently? I do. Yeah. Hmm, okay. What do you tend to use them for? Similarly, there's like a a level that I've gotten to with search and replace in Vim that I'm pretty good at it. And I know some of the like weird edge cases where you can like capitalize or lowercase or do a capture group or transform. And there's, it's a whole, like, I think it's Turing complete Vim's substitute expression sort of thing, but I've gotten to a certain point with that. But there are plenty of times where I'm like, I can see the sequence. It's a very repetitive sequence of things. I need to delete up to the quotes and then I need to move to the next number character and then wrap that in quotes and that sort of thing. So whenever I find myself with like a file, say it's like a CSV or something like that, that I want to do some cleanup on, I'll often use macros in Vim. They are annoying, though. I will say that you have to get them right. And there's like technically a way to edit them, but I've never figured that out. So if I get it right, then I'm good. But if I realize like, oh, crap, I forgot to move to the beginning of the line. So now it's off by one. And every single one of these, then I have to just like re-record the whole thing. And then it's unfortunate. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was just kind of curious because macros are one of those things that brought me to Vim, where I was like, I saw someone use one and it was really neat and it was perfect and it got the job done quickly. And I'm like, that's cool. Like, I want that in my life. But then I've realized in all the years that I've been using Vim, I don't think I've made a single macro. So I feel like I'm missing like a Vim badge in my life where I should make a macro just to say I've made one now. But then I'm not sure what I would use it for. So yeah, okay. I was just curious. Yeah, it demos really well, but it's probably more novelty than like actual utility. There's a small subset of things that I find it maps well to, but if it's not something that's like comfortable, then learning macros while trying to solve a problem. There's a very pointed XKCD that is relevant here of like time spent automating versus time you'll save. And man, I I spent a lot of time on the wrong side of that curve. So <laughs> I mean, automation is in the eye of the beholder. That's how that goes, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I have fun doing it, and that's not an excuse, but <laughs> here we hey. are. If you have something that brings you joy these days, I say lean into it. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building a great product by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed, one word, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Once again, that link was scoutapm.com slash B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. Thank you again to Scout APM for sponsoring this episode of the Bike Shed. 
So to uh, pivot again, since that seems to be the mode I'm into today, I'm hopping around from subject to subject. I'm excited to talk about something that you've mentioned on previous episodes and that I've been wanting to dig into and then just haven't really made the time for it, but it's Tailwind CSS, because I know you're super hyped about it ever since you've mentioned it. I've also been seeing lots of other people that are really excited about it as well. So yeah, want to chat about that today? Yeah. Hype, hype, hype. I'm definitely a Tailwind CSS hype man. I'm honestly sort of surprised by how much I have been enjoying it. I thought it would be fine and good, but I'm like, at this point, entirely convinced that this is the only way we should write CSS moving forward. I'll have to defend those claims, I feel like. But backing up, I'm not sure how familiar you are, but just for anyone that's listening on, I should probably give a quick overview on what Tailwind CSS is. Sure. So there's sort of a category of functional CSS or atomic CSS or utility CSS is another word that folks use for it. And at first glance, they all look somewhat heretical because you end up with these classes that are like margin left six and border bottom two and border red 100. And there are all these very presentational class names that you then end up littering throughout your HTML. And it is, for me at least, the exact opposite of everything I've learned about how to write good HTML and CSS over the years. But I think it comes from a place of pragmatism and of folks looking at all of the different solutions that are out there, all the different approaches and CSS architectures that folks have built. And frankly, I don't know if other folks share this, but I have struggled historically to feel comfortable working in CSS. And basically from, I would say, the first week that I started using Tailwind, I just felt so much more capable. It was so much more obvious. And there were a lot of things that I was concerned about in terms of just littering all of these presentational classes throughout my code. And in my experience, none of them have come to pass. And if anything, the code is its way better. It's way more maintainable. Everyone sort of understands what's going on. Granted, I've only worked on it in a relatively small code base with a smaller team. So we very much were playing off the same sheet. But um, yeah, it's it's fantastic. And I'm a huge fan. But I'll pause there. And any particular questions or... Yeah, I think I may have a, a couple questions or just things that I want to chat about around Tailwind CSS, because um, the fact that you're excited about it gets me excited about it. So I wanted to dig into it to understand a bit what you're intrigued by and what um, pains it's solving in your life right now. Oh, I also saw an article from Ben Ornstein, one of the creators of Tuple. They also redesigned their website recently, and he'd mentioned that they use Tailwind CSS, and they have a nice article that talks about using the framework But myself, I didn't pull it down and integrate it with anything that I'm working on locally. Instead, uh, like a good developer, I went and just found a podcast to listen to that would tell me about Tailwind CSS. And I found a really great one. It was very helpful because I discovered that the creator of Tailwind CSS, Adam Wathen, has been on the React podcast with Michael Chan. And they have a great episode where they sort of dive into what is Tailwind CSS? How is it born? Like, what's its purpose? And they also talked about the fact that it's that atomic sort of like functional CSS, which I want to poke at that specific wording and, and why that's meaningful. But there was something else that Adam said that really resonated with me. And he talked about if he picks up a ticket and he just needs to add a little bit of space between an icon and some text. And there's this moment of where you're just, you're 
frozen because you don't know what to do. It's like, well, do I create a new class? Do I scan through like all these thousands of lines of CSS code to figure out if this has already been done somewhere else, especially if you're brand new to a product. So you just have this moment of where everything is globally defined and you don't know if there's already existing pattern and where to look for that existing pattern to make this one small change. And I think for me, it eventually comes down to I'll ask somebody and I'll say, is this a pattern that already exists somewhere else? And that has worked. But that moment of being frozen for a small change is what made me then be like, yeah, I I feel that pain. So if you've solved this, I'm really interested in it. Uh, So circling back, when they talk about the functional CSS and atomic CSS, how is that different in your words from how we're currently approaching CSS outside of Tailwind? I'm not sure the specifics of the like nomenclature, why functional is a word that they use. Utility is probably the one that seems like the most direct mapping where you have these little utility classes that allow you to augment the presentation of a given element on the page. And so the difference in my experience of like what it's like authoring with Tailwind as opposed to with any other CSS framework that I've used in the past is you don't end up writing style sheets, essentially. It's not 100%. There's still a couple things that you need to break out. And like gradients are one example where it's really hard for them to express that in the Tailwind utility classes. You need a utility for like every possible variant of every possible color transitioning to every possible other color in any direct. Like it's just too much to try and generate that. But for just about everything else, for padding and spacing and typography and colors and borders and shadows and just basically all of the stuff that I use to style, it's all now available in these little composable utility classes. And so here we're now back to very similar to Unix. Uh, Tailwind has this wonderful, they're broken down into just these little atomic pieces. That's atomic CSS is another one that I've heard. And so they're these little building blocks and then you compose them together. And so if you have a link, you want to make it blue and you want to make it italic you can say like text blue 100 or probably like 800 or something there's a scale for each color and then italic is the utility class for italic which is really nice Uh, i enjoy that and then you're done and it's right there it's on the element that you actually want to modify and that's it you don't have to go to another file you don't have to align them you don't have to name things which is actually really interesting naming is one of those classically hard problems So you don't have to come up with a CSS class that names this thing on the page, which is, I didn't think of the cognitive overhead of that in the past because there's so much, you get so much value out of them. You name this thing and then you can go over to your style sheet and now you can style it. But what if you could just style it without even giving it a name? You just say what you want it to look like. And it really does look like heresy when you first see it. Like it's obviously inline styles just done through the class attribute. But in my experience, it works really well. So that that's resonating with what I've understood about when people are saying like atomic and functional CSS. And the fact that it's the utility bit is what made more sense to me when looking at this pattern and understanding how it's supposed to be used. And someone who hasn't actually used Tailwind CSS, but looking at the docs, it reminds me of bourbon. And you can then correct me if this sort of like aligns with your thinking as well. Uh, this is probably simplifying Tailwind, of course, but it reminds me of Bourbon, which is the ThoughtBot project, which is a suite of helpful utilities and other helpers that are abstracting the common tasks that you would do in SAS. So it's not trying to be your 
opinionated component library of like, say like bootstrap of like, this is what a button looks like, or this is what a table is going to look like. Instead, it's just trying to give you helpers. So one small example is the size utility. You can use size to then set the width and height, and then it translates directly to SAS. And then that's what comes out the other side for you. It sounds like that's what you're loving so much about Tailwind is the fact that it's not so opinionated about like, this is what this button's going to look like, and I'm going to help you style it. It's more, I'm going to give you all these little helpers to get the job done quickly. And the fact that you get to stay in HTML and you get to have it right there next to the structure of code that you want to style, that part sounds really nice. But like you said, it's inline styles, which is something that we've always been told don't do. It's like dry. It's one of those things that's just sort of like been hammered into us. So yeah, I'd really love to pick up a project or something where I can play with this. What is the easiest way to play around with Tailwind CSS? Is there like a code pin playground? Would you recommend that approach? Or how would you recommend if someone doesn't have an active project, but they'd like to play around with getting familiar with the syntax? Yeah, I think a, a code pen or something like that would be very doable. And there's definitely like a little bit of a learning curve in terms of the naming of the different utility classes. There's a very structured naming sequence where like margin has a bunch of different values. There's a, a sizing scale. So it's like margin 1, 2, 4, 8, 12, 16, 12. Like there are certain jumps that it makes. And the same thing will be true for margin left, margin right, margin top, margin bottom, margin X, which is left and right, margin Y. And then the same thing for padding and the same thing for one of the others, border maybe. I think border probably has a similar one, but then border also has variants. And so for everything, there's sort of this combinatoric explosion of class names that you can choose from. And internalizing those and getting to the point where you can type out the styles without having to actively be reading something else is there's a little bit of an on-ramp to that. There's a great cheat sheet that I've been using, which I can share a link to in the show notes. And it definitely is something that I expected it to take longer because if you look at all of the possible classes that Tailwind produces, like a, a default Tailwind configuration will generate like a megabyte style sheet, which is bad. You don't want that. Uh, because that's every possible variant of every possible styling attribute in all of the colors and all of the sizes and hover and not hover and just every possible thing. Also breakpoints, all of that is built in. So the default behavior is to just generate every one of those classes and make them available. But in reality, you're only going to end up using a tiny, tiny subset of them. And so actually, as of a recent version of Tailwind, they integrated Purge CSS directly into the, the Tailwind tooling. And that will actually scan through uh, pretty directly. It just kind of looks at the class attribute on anything that you have or class name if it's looking at React. And it will say, like, it looks like you're using these classes. That's what's going to come in your output style sheet. But as a result, I think the style sheet on the app that I'm working on is only like three kilobytes or something like that. So it went from one meg as the default very easily collapses down to actually a pretty small size and smaller than the hand-rolled CSS that I've worked with on a lot of projects. So that was a really interesting thing. But yeah, looping back, because I think I completely skipped your question there, it is much closer to Bourbon than Bootstrap. Bootstrap is, here is sort of a pre-styled system that you can lean into, and buttons will look like this, and alerts will look like this, and modals will look like this. Tailwind is much more of a lower level, you can build your styling on top of this, but it's a lot of helpers that make that easier. The difference is with Tailwind, those helpers exist in class names that you use within the HTML, as opposed to Bourbon being a bunch of SAS mix-in type helpers, as far as I understand Bourbon's place in the world. So Bourbon, I think, could be used to help build out your styling system. I think Tailwind would end up being an alternative to that, but a slightly different approach and ends up being class-based in the way that it works. 
most bootstrap sites look very similar. Tailwind sites do, like I'm at the point now where I can kind of recognize there are certain shades of color that stand out to me and there are certain sort of spacing and whatnot. But I will also say that generally Tailwind sites look good. There are some defaults that are baked in that I find really interesting where it's not just sort of a random combinatoric space of all of the possible things. They've thought really hard about what are the sizes? Like what's the graduated scale? It's not every size. It's not two pixels, four pixels, six pixels, eight, 10. Like it doesn't go like that. It's a more graduated scale and everything is based off of that same scale. So sizing ends up being, there's more like symmetry and sameness. And that's the thing that I've always struggled with because it's like uh, in one place in the CSS, I'm doing 10 pixels. Over here, I'm doing three rems. Down there, I'm doing VHs and all that. There's so many different ways to author spacing and styles that I always get it wrong or I come into a project and we've changed halfway through from pixels to rems or it's a 12 pixel base and someone else is like no I want 16 I was like all right well I don't know I'll figure something out in there and with Tailwind those decisions are made for you and made in my experience in a really well thought out foundational way. All of that sounds really nice. It sounds like it's a nice blend between what Bourbon is. Its purpose is to provide like these utilities and abstractions for the common problems that you're going to solve and simplify the interface. But then it's also going a step further and trying to solve a few additional problems along. We think these are some of the basic styling and margin and padding that you're going to want on your page. So that sounds like a nice in between for it. I'm curious, as you've been using Tailwind CSS, are you using it on one project or two projects? I'm using it on one client project, and then I'm also now using it on everything that I do personally. I will never author CSS in another way if I'm not forced to. (laughs) Wow, that's a strong endorsement. That's cool. Yeah. Circling back to what I was thinking earlier, how does it help us, like, say, if I'm that developer and I now need to add padding between this icon and this text, and then that question of where do I look now? And then is this already done somewhere else? Have you found that it has helped with that problem where you feel less paralyzed and like you can dive right in and make that change without worrying that you're introducing a new pattern that will then start to drift from the other patterns in the application? Uh, Yeah, there's definitely still some consideration to make sure that you're not, you know, over here, we're using four and over here, we're using eight, we're on a large scale here, we're on a small scale there. So you do still have to have some purposeful thinking around that. But the, the question of like, oh, I want this icon to have spacing I now know exactly what to do. I go and I find that icon and I apply the spacing to it. Although that's actually not true and an interesting uh, example of where this is another thing that I really love about Tailwind is in addition to just being these like low level utility classes, I find the more I spend time with it, the more I'm impressed with how well thought out it is and how it really seems to be a framework for building your sort of style system, your style guide. And one of the things that it actually just recently added in one or two versions back is better support for spacing. So spacing, we always think about and historically have been forced to implement directly on elements. So when you think about it, like imagine that you have a nav bar and there are three links that are side by side and you want to put some spacing in between them. So typically what I would do is either apply the spacing directly to two of those elements of the three and say like margin right 10 pixels. And now cool, we've got spacing. But what if one of those suddenly gets hidden because it's conditionally only shown to admins? Now we have this weird extra gap on the page. Whoops, that's no good. So then I get fancy and I do things like not last child or some weird pseudo selector like that in CSS. That mostly works. But again, if I have gaps and things that it might be applying weirdly, or if it's like not the last one, but now the the last one's a different one. And I've always found that to be a thing that I really struggle with. And so Tailwind recently introduced some new utility classes that are around spacing, 
of a group of elements. So instead of spacing each of those items, you apply a class to the parent element that says space between and then four, space between eight, and then it will do the necessary CSS magic because unfortunately right now this is not directly supported and everything, but it will apply spacing between the elements. So the elements themselves don't get the spacing. The parent has the information as to how to space its children. And it elevates the idea of spacing to like this first class concern as opposed to something that we're like constantly fidgeting and pushing stuff around. And I feel like a lot of my CSS prior to Tailwind, I was fighting back and forth. I would like make some change and be like, oh, that broke it this way. Let me push it that way. Let me push it that way. And it was this overcorrection back and forth. And it always felt, I don't know, I felt less capable than I wanted to. And with Tailwind, I'm able to very directly express the things that I want and like these spacing and divide utilities are the other one that they recently added just so directly map i can just say yeah space out these children elements with you know four pixels between them or whatever it's not actually pixels but and it's whatever adam wathen decided was a good number and i trust him more than i trust me so that works out those i think are based on the idea of like grid has gap spacing coming to it already has gap spacing and then flex gap is a thing that will be coming to flexbox but even then not everything is always within either grid or flex it might be in something else and these are just nice utilities that do a little bit of css magic under the hood but again allow me to just very directly author the styles that i need yeah all of that sounds really nice yeah i was just kind of wondering what tailwind is doing under the hood for spacing and how to elevate it to sort of like a first class citizen or first class concern do you know if Tailwind CSS, is it does it work for all browsers? So it sounds like there is some default styling that you are gaining. So does it work for everything or are there some caveats? I believe they target IE11 and I think they're still supporting it. I don't know how much longer that will hold. Um, and so they have some fallbacks for various things, but I think it's IE11 and up. And I don't believe you get any default styles per se. You do get a, a style sheet reset, so a normalized type thing that comes with them so that they're pulling everything down to a common foundation. And then in each of the browsers, they're building up the same thing from there. But no default styling, really. They actually strip away almost everything. Like links don't have underlines by default via their normalize. And so that's complicated for accessibility reasons, actually. But it is like they really just strip it down. All headings are actually the same size in Tailwind which is weird, but they make it incredibly easy to then do the graduated scale that you want. And I've always found responsive design to be incredibly hard. Even on my best day, I feel like I'm there's so much indirection where I have to go over to the style sheet, find the class selector. Then within that, I insert a breakpoint and hopefully we have the necessary SAS mixins and things so that I can write that pretty expressively. But mobile first is the thing that people talk about that I've never really understood and never really done. And I feel like a bad citizen because I'm doing things backwards and it's always just been a mess. With Tailwind, basically every single utility class, there is a responsive variant. And so the nature of the style sheets, they are inherently mobile first. I can't even make that not happen because it's just how they authored the framework. And so now I apply to the element that I'm targeting. This is how I want you to look. And then on a small screen, SM colon, and then whatever utility class I want. So if I want to say on a small screen, you know what, you can have a little bit more space. So SM colon max width large. And now we have a max width, but only on small screens and up and then medium md colon whatever and again we have this for everything and so it's incredibly easy to say like oh i want this to be flex and i want it to be flex column by default because we're on mobile but on a medium screen medium colon flex dash row and there i've just done a responsive fancy flexbox layout with no actual class names authored and just using what's built in and it's so incredibly easy and direct and encourages me to think about things in the correct way like i'm doing mobile first without even really trying 
You just took the words out of my mouth. I was about to say, now that you're using Tailwind, you can say that you've done mobile first. <laughs> I'm a mobile first. I'm a designer now. That's the thing. <laughs> and actually, this has been incredibly empowering for me because I've always, I still don't consider myself competent in terms of layout and design and color choice and typography, but I've been capable, like I could implement a design in CSS. Uh, it's never been the strongest of my skill sets, but it's something that I could get by if needed. And working within Tailwind, I've just, I don't know, it just got easier, like so much easier to the point that I'm like, that's kind of fun. Oh, I'm going to pick up a design ticket because I, I want to do that. And that change is really interesting to observe, sort of taking a step back and looking at it and being like, wow, I, I like doing design work now. This is novel. That is so cool. And now we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. Being stuck at home these days, you probably don't think much about internet privacy on your own home network. Fire up incognito mode on your own browser and no one can see what you're doing, right? Wrong. Even in incognito mode, your online activity can still be traced. Even if you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. ExpressVPN makes sure your ISP can't see what sites you visit. Instead, your internet connection is rerouted through ExpressVPN's secure servers. Each ExpressVPN server has an IP address that's shared among thousands of users. That means everything you do is anonymized and can't be traced back to you. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with best-in-class encryption, so your information is always protected. Use the internet with confidence from your computer, tablet, or smartphone. ExpressVPN has you covered on every device. Simply tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the fastest and most trusted VPN on the market. It's rated number one by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless more. So protect your online activity today with a VPN that you can trust to secure your privacy. Visit our special link at expressvpn.com slash bikeshed. That's all one word, expressvpn.com slash B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. And you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. One more time, that's expressvpn.com slash bikeshed. Thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. You said something a moment ago that I'm still thinking about, and that comes down to accessibility and then how we factor that into a lot of the design and the structure that we're creating. And that's something that maybe Tailwind is working on. I'm pretty sure I saw an accessibility section on the docs where they may already be starting to build that out or think about it. And I'm so intrigued and excited, and maybe some of these, these things already exist, and I'm just less aware of them. But I'm very excited for the idea of accessibility becoming something that is the default. It's not something that we build it now, and then we think, oh, we need to go back and make this accessible. But instead, that's how we begin it first. So it's almost like that mobile first, but we want to do accessibility first and then just build on top of that. And one other example of that that happened across my mind this week is because CTO Joe, um, I don't know why I always call him that. It's just fun. Because it rhymes. Is that it? Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. I don't know if someone at ThoughtBot said that and I picked it up, but CTO Joe and Mike Burns, they've been working on transitioning a number of our branch names over to the new name of using Maine. And there's a blog post coming out that will probably be published by the time this episode is published. So I'll be sure to link to it in the show notes. And one of the steps in there talks about how to move over your branch to the new name, but also provides a step for every time you initialize a new repository, how you can go ahead and set the name there. So that way you are by default. And then and we're adding that to our thoughtbot.files. So I'm grateful. So it's something that I won't have to think about anymore. But that just really hit me where I was like, oh, yeah, like I've been so focused on like changing things and going back and fixing it versus like this now makes it the new default. And I'm really excited about when I start to see that shift in the world of where this is just the new way that we do things and that inclusion and accessibility and stuff is the new default framework and what we're building on top of. So that's a little bit of a tangent, but I just get excited about that stuff. 
That's a good tangent. And it's it's an important thing, I think, to consider as you're looking at UI libraries because it's so easy to focus on things that are more directly visible. And then suddenly you find yourself like, oh, this is such a great widget library. Uh, no, it doesn't. It's terrible on accessibility because most of us are not sort of exercising the accessibility edge cases of things most of the time. So it's easy to not see it if you're not actively thinking about it, if you don't prioritize it and make it a top of mind consideration. So I think it's super relevant to to have as part of a conversation around something like this. My sense is that Tailwind itself does not have too much in terms of accessibility concerns. Like I think they have a little section in the docs and some considerations made, but broadly speaking, I think they just sort of do the baseline right things. So like they use REMS, I believe it's REMS, whichever is the correct unit to do so that if people go command plus on the browser, then they can resize it such that if they have any need to change the size and you know enlarge things on the screen, that it will move cohesively, that everything will move together as opposed to like one piece of text changing and then something else is like, I'm 10 pixels. You can't change me no matter what. There's actually a companion project, which is actually just sort of interesting in terms of what it is and how it exists in the world, but it's called Tailwind UI. So Tailwind CSS is the framework. It's open source. It's developed in the open. It's very much a thing that everybody can use and run with. Tailwind UI is a paid product uh, produced by Adam Wathen, who's the creator of Tailwind CSS, and then Steve Shoger, who is a business partner of Adam's. They worked together on a book called Refactoring UI, and now they're working on Tailwind UI, which is basically a bunch of HTML templates. So it's the HTML templates using Tailwind. And so it's, you want to build a three-column pricing grid page. Cool. Here's an example of that just done. And you can copy and paste that directly into your app and then tweak to your heart's content. You can change the colors and the sizing, but you have a good, solid, well-thought-out, well-designed base to work from. And they have an impressive array of things in there, and it's growing over time. Some of them are interactive. I think they're using Vue, or maybe it's Alpine is a different JS framework that they're using, but like a minimal layer of interactivity that they've added. So some of them have that, but there's like forms and grids and just all sorts of other stuff. And it's actually, uh, from my perspective, it's very reasonably priced. So it's 149 for the application UI bundle, which is one portion of it. There's a separate marketing bundle, which is 149 as well. And then you can get them both for 249. But the, as far as I can tell, the licensing is very liberal. So like I, as a consultant, I could purchase this once and then use it on my projects or any client that I'm working with, they could have it and then they use it across all of their different things. The amount of shortcut that this offers on so many things is fantastic. And it's a really interesting business model as well, because they take a lot of the work that they're doing in there and then they upstream it to the open source project. And so it's basically a way for them to fund the work. And they've actually... It's the two of them working full-time. They just hired someone else to work full-time on it. And so they're building this little ecosystem that seems to be a profitable business, but also produces open source as a side effect. And I'm honestly kind of in love with that. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because that was one of the other interesting points that I heard Adam and Michael chat about on the React podcast on that episode was the fact that they did have that space where you could buy those sort of templates. Like if you want a table that's already designed and structured, like you can buy into the Tailwind UI. And that's really interesting because Bootstrap also has a similar offering where, but I think there's, I don't know if they go as small as like if you just want like particular components, I think those are all free, but they have, if you want to buy like an entire template for a website, then Bootstrap has you covered and that's something that you can purchase and they're headed in that direction, but on a smaller scale where it's more component level versus a whole layout for an entire website. And that I'm with you. That seems really cool because creating open source and sharing it with the world is wonderful. And I appreciate everyone who does it. But then also, if you find a way to make some money on the side, like 
Absolutely. Like more power to you. And it's already there, the tooling of other people can't afford it or choose not to afford it, that they could build it themselves. It also seems neat that if you use those components that you're copying the HTML and the CSS, like there's no build process. It's not like another package that you need to include. So that part is really nice too, where you're just straight up copying some HTML and CSS and porting that over to your project. Yeah, it's funny that that is part of the sales pitch, but it is very much like you are intended to copy and paste. That is it. They might actually have a package or something like that. I think there are a handful of things that do come through that sort of mechanism, but primarily it is intended for that. But the extension of that is it means you can do anything you want at that point. So you copy it into your app, but then you're like, I don't need this header. I'm going to delete that. I want to delete now that our spacing doesn't look like that. And you can take this foundation and then very directly apply it. And so it's an interesting product in and of itself, but then also the like how it's supporting this open source ecosystem. And this is a fantastic tool. And the fact that they've now found a way to fund the development of it in a very productive way is like, cool, this is great. This is a good thing for the world. As an aside, Adam Wathen also has his own podcast that he hosts. Full Stack Radio is the name of that. He talks a little bit less about Tailwind on there because he's typically interviewing someone else. But every handful of episodes he'll have on someone who's also related to the project or interested or something like that. And they'll end up shifting over and talking about it. So it's a good way to see a lens into both the like code side of it, but also he talks a bit about the business side and like releasing Tailwind UI and all of those decisions there. So it's a very interesting project. So it was really because of you that I heard about Tailwind and then now I'm really intrigued by it. And then I started seeing some other people on Twitter start to talk about it as well. I haven't asked around a ThoughtBot. I'm really curious to see what our designers think about it and if they've been using it because I hold their opinion in high regard and would love to know if they've had an experience in using Tailwind CSS and how it worked for them and what pain points it sort of resolved or any issues that they ran into. Because uh, I am very fortunate where often I am still working with a designer on a lot of projects and I don't necessarily need to be as skilled on the front end, although that's often not the case too. So I just contradicted myself. But anywho, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in hearing um, from some of the designers that thought about I'll have to ask around and see if they've had a chance to play with it as well. Have you worked with any designers that have had experience with Tailwind? I believe there's at least a handful of folks at ThoughtBot who do, although I'd be very interested if you like raise the question. I was like, I hate it. It's the worst. It's so bad. But yeah, I think at least one or two designers, I've talked to them about it loosely. So I think it's it's appreciated. It is really interesting because like much like when React came out and it had JSX, suddenly you're authoring your HTML and your JavaScript. This is bananas. You can't do that. And Tailwind has a similar obviously wrongness that then is really interesting to sort of poke at and be like, yeah, but what if it's not wrong? What if it's fine? What if it's actually great? And there's totally, it's very easy to make just a giant mess with it. But it's also really easy to then, like if you're in React, you just extract a component to encapsulate a common set of utility classes that you're using. Like your buttons, that's probably going to have a button component. And then you don't need to repeat the button classes all over the place. It's actually a handful of different ways. But for me, it's also been a really interesting study in composition and like breaking things down into the small composable pieces rather than having like let's have a button class turns out actually that is bad is a thing that i have learned recently because it's like i want a button but slightly different i also want a button but slightly different in the like the cost of abstracting too early and getting it slightly wrong and then having to have all these escape hatches and whatnot tailwind is just like at a really nice level of abstraction is what i found Well, when I hear back from some designers at ThoughtBot, I'll be sure to pass along if they've had the chance to work with it and what they think about it as well. I am still 
fixated on the idea of how does this help overall with like a style guide or something so that there's that one source of truth. So when I need to add a button to a page versus having to go look at all the other pages to see how a button has been implemented and maybe it's been slightly done on each page, how do I have a source of truth? Do you think Tailwind's going to help with like, I want a style guide or even if it's not a style guide, but I just know where to look. And I think I asked you this question already a little bit earlier, but I'm still fixated on that idea of like, will this help me build a style guide by having this utility first and specifically using Tailwind? Yeah. So I have not done this. So this is all going to be sort of hypothesizing based on what I've seen. But my hot take would be that I think it's probably the best tool for the job that I've seen. And so the specific reasons for that are Tailwind is actually almost like a meta framework. So Tailwind is a bunch of post-CSS functionality, post-CSS being an actual CSS compilation library framework, whichever that is. Uh, But it can do, post-CSS can do a whole bunch of stuff. And so then Tailwind is, let's build out this sort of explosion of utility classes based on a bunch of inputs. So by default, Tailwind's going to define red, orange, yellow, blue, etc. And it's going to have 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, all those variants of each of the colors. And then it's going to make that available for the background, the text color, everything that you might apply the color to. And so that combinatoric explosion is not a fixed thing. It's something that you can actually augment and change by going into the Tailwind config file and saying, hey, Tailwind, for our company, our colors are ThoughtBot Red is Pantone, you know, one, two, three, or the hex code, you know, whatever. I, sh- I should know this off the top of my head, but whatever the hex code is for Ralph Red. I was going to be really impressed one, if you did. <laughs> no, and it changed not that long ago for accessibility reasons as well. But so like for ThoughtBot, there would be this is what ThoughtBot Red is. This is what this other color is. This is what this other color is in addition to all of the others. And then you can actually take values out of the spacing hierarchy. I've not heard of folks doing this, but I know that it's a thing. You can add to it, but you can also extract and say, we don't want to have 32 different sizes. We want to constrain it down and say that we get eight sizes. That's what everybody can work with. And you know what? At that point, have fun. Go implement. It'll be pretty clear if you need a big space or a little space and you're now sort of snapped into those sizing grid points because we've removed values from the sizing hierarchy. So that sort of talks about what are all of the available classes to work with. That thing can be packaged up that like essentially Tailwind config and post CSS can be packaged up and made available to any say application that needs this. And so that actually sort of ends up being a living style guide in a way you now have the classes available that can do the thing. We don't need a separate document that describes what they are. They they are what they are. They're just there available in your class names that are available. The other nicety that I've seen, though, is often folks will implement a style guide as both a static sort of, like it's a web page that describes it. It says like, here's what the H1 size should be in the H2 and the H3. And then often like a React library. But then also, what if we also have a Rails app and we need to do some server-side rendering of that and now we want to like make it work in both places, what do we do? Tailwind, I, I think, actually maps to that really well because you can expose, even say like common button stuff, you could introduce your own button class that applies a bunch of Tailwind utility classes. So for us, a button always means it's rounded, it's got a drop shadow, it's this color, it's this color when it's hovered. A secondary variant has these sort of things. A danger variant has these sort of things. And so you can actually build closer to like a bootstrap type thing, but make it available still in the classes, in the CSS class space, so that it can be shared in React or in Rails or in anything else that is designing for the web. And so that sort of distributability, as well as the configurability of Tailwind, to me, mean that it's it's sort of like perfectly geared towards being the thing that you define your design language in. 
I really like that bit you said about being able to expose the configuration to serve as a starting point for a style guide. That part sounds really nice. So based on everything you just shared, I'm really excited to use Tailwind CSS. You've mentioned Tailwind a few times before, but now I'm definitely going to be on the lookout for an opportunity to use it in a project because I too would like to share in your newfound CSS joy. So thanks for going on a deep dive today. Absolutely. But um, I feel like I've been uh, rambling enough in my love letter to Tailwind now. So uh, should we wrap up? Yeah, let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at svicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.